Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio, the crown jewel of AM radio. My great honor and privilege to be on immediately after one of the greatest journalists and broadcasters in American history, Lou Dobbs. You know, with the indictment of Hunter Biden on nine new charges regarding his federal income taxes, there is now a spate of wildly inaccurate fake news stories regarding the joint federal tax filing of my wife and I, alleging that we have somehow evaded taxes or gotten some kind of sweetheart deal from the IRS or the Biden Justice Department. Both of these things are false, of course, but that doesn't stop uh, irresponsible so-called media outlets like the Daily Beast uh, and others from repeating these massive lies. It also doesn't stop it from trending on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, Interestingly, these false claims resurfaced just as Mrs. Stone and I were celebrating our 31st wedding anniversary on Pearl Harbor Day. And thanks to the literally thousands of people out there in the WABC uh, radio listening audience who sent your best wishes for our 31 years together. The situations regarding uh, the Stones and Hunter Biden, well, they're like apples and oranges. You see, Hunter got charged with evasion of taxes, failure to file and pay taxes, and filing false and fraudulent tax returns. Hunter Biden may have paid his taxes in full now because he has a $4.9 million infusion of cash from his Hollywood sugar daddy, uh, a screener, screenwriter lawyer named Kevin Morris, but he failed to report $8.2 million in income. Mrs. Stone and I, on the other hand, declared every penny of income and fully disclosed all of our, well, rather meager assets. We committed no crime. We're being sued by the Biden Justice Department simply because we are unable to pay. We have no multimillionaire to foot our bills for our full, never disputed, publicly known tax debts, which is, of course, our financial responsibility. The government actually acted against us in a uh, civil suit three years ago because the age of our remaining tax debt which had been greatly paid down over eight years, was about to expire under the law. Like millions of Americans who owe money to the IRS, uh, we never had any dispute. It's always been a matter of public record because when tax liens were filed by the IRS, 
uh, that becomes a matter of public record. Now, when the IRS transferred those liens from Miami-Dade County, Florida, to Broward County, Florida, which requires first canceling the liens in Miami-Dade and then refiling them in Broward, many in the fake news media falsely reported that the Trump IRS had simply discharged $2.5 million of Roger Stone's tax interest and penalty debt. In other words, they failed to report that those exact same tax liens were immediately refiled in Broward. In other words, we didn't get off the hook for anything. Uh, nor have we delayed or avoided paying our taxes. These past due taxes have been paid through eight years of monthly payments uh, in which we never were late with the payment, uh, or, and those payments uh, continue in prize uh, both, in, uh, both uh, interest and penalty. Our tax accountants have provided all of the information requested by the government. All records submitted by our tax attorneys were accurate and documented. You see, Mrs. Stone is a meticulous record keeper who, while undergoing cancer treatments, nonetheless compiled years of tax records to meet the legal deadlines for submission uh, by the IRS and the DOJ. Here's the thing. Yes, we owe $2.6 million, but 75% of that is penalty and interest with the IRS refusing to reduce either in offering compromise negotiations with my tax attorneys. In fact, our tax attorney was engaged in good faith offering compromise negotiations to resolve this entire matter, to get on a payment plan, at the time that the Biden Department of Justice, without notice, filed its sensationalized civil lawsuit against us, falsely implying in a press release that we had evaded taxes or hidden income, quote, in order to live a lavish lifestyle. False. The IRS press release blindsiding my tax attorneys was released at 5 p.m. on a Friday night <clears throat> in order to ensure that we were unprepared to respond to an Associated Press story, which ran immediately, but omitted most of the facts and without any response from us. We committed no crime and broke no law. That's not the case with Hunter Biden. We're required to pay every penny to the IRS with interest and penalty. And although it will probably take me the rest of my life, I am required to do so. I received no special deal. It's a completely false narrative. At the same time, <coughs> my, Mrs. Stone and I are already defending ourselves against 11 outstanding civil suits filed by liberal special interest groups and your garden-variety left-wing crackpots. Every one of these lawsuits is baseless, meritless, groundless, but man, are they sensationalized. Uh, unfortunately, when you're charged in a civil suit, you have to respond regardless of how frivolous the lawsuit against you may be. Then recently, Hunter Biden's lawyers sought to subpoena me regarding Hunter Biden's laptop based on some weird conspiracy theory that claims that Dr. Keith Ablo, who happens to be a friend of mine, uh, who treated Hunter Biden professionally, cloned Hunter's laptop, gave the records to one of my attorneys, Tyler Nixon, who is ironically a boyhead friend of Bo and Hunter Biden. The theory is that I directed Tyler to then give this information to Mayor Giuliani, 
heard every day right here on WABC, who vetted it and then gave it to the New York Post. This theory is daft. It's nutty. It's baseless. Everything I know about Hunter Biden's laptop, well, I first learned uh, from the great reporting in the New York Post by Miranda Devine and John Levine. Uh, they were dogged in chasing and reporting this story. Anything I didn't learn there, I learned at Breitbart News through the reporting of Lisa Joe Harris. But now you see, this is how lawfare works. I have to go retain a Delaware attorney to quash these fairy tale fishing expedition indictments. It's a real pain in the neck. Jonathan Turley wrote a terrific piece for the New York Post where he argues that the 56-page indictment of Hunter Biden for tax evasion, while it makes for great reading, uh, is uh, really an act of evasion itself. The steps, quoting uh, Hurt, uh, Turley, the steps taken by Hunter to evade taxes are impressive, but not nearly as impressive as the efforts of the Justice Department to evade any direct implications for his father, President Biden. In that sense, Turley writes, the indictment itself is a marvel of evasion. There are three glaring omissions in the indictment, says Turley, that tend to shield critical claimants and conduct conduct that implicate the president. First, there is the Burisma Ukrainian money. The special counsel only indicts tax evasion that occurred in recent years. That's because the long investigation into Hunter inexplicably allowed the statute of limitations to expire on most of the controversial payments from Ukrainian gas company Burisma. You, you remember Burisma. That's the company that had Hunter Biden under investigation until Vice President Joe Biden threatened to withhold $1 billion of U.S. aid to Ukraine unless the prosecutor investigating Burisma uh, and his son was fired. Quid pro quo, anyone? Turley goes on to say that recent testimony from IRS whistleblowers suggests that None of this was an accident. Investigators were stonewalled, they claimed, and the Justice Department was previously moving to reject any charges whatsoever against Hunter Biden. So if you have to, if you ask me, I think all of this, these new charges, are very largely designed so that Hunter can, uh, by claiming this is an ongoing investigation on which he's not allowed to comment, uh, can avoid testifying uh, before the House uh, Oversight Committee, which has sent him a legal subpoena. They've also subpoenaed uh, presidential brother James Biden and also Natalie uh, Biden. Uh, and I'm interested to see whether the two-tiered justice system is at work again when uh, Steve Bannon uh, and Peter Navarro, both supporters of President Trump, uh, refused to testify for the January 6th committee uh, rather than asserting their Fifth Amendment rights, as I did, uh, having already been trapped into a uh, process crime uh, playing word games, uh, uh, I elected to assert my Fifth Amendment rights, not because I had done anything wrong, not because I had anything to hide, not because I knew anything about what happened on January 6th, uh, but simply because I don't trust the House Democrats to twist your words into a criminal indictment.
But Bannon uh, and Navarro were very quickly charged, uh, went very quickly to trial, and both uh, were convicted. If Hunter Biden refuses to show up and testify, or James Biden, or Natalie Biden, uh, and they're referred to the Justice Department for prosecution on uh, contempt of Congress, will they be prosecuted? It really remains to be seen. The New York Young Republicans uh, had their uh, 111th uh, holiday gala yesterday as a Young Republican National Chairman from 1977 to 1979. I was honored to be invited as an honored guest, but I was uh, very disappointed uh, that I had already committed to speak at the Lee County, Florida Republican Committee Christmas Party. Well, and all politics are local. President Trump even invited me to fly to New York for him, with him for the event, uh, which would have been uh, a terrific honor, but I had to pass. This, by the way, is the Young Republican Club, uh, once uh, belonged to by Richard Nixon, uh, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, uh, New York Mayor John V. Lindsay, uh, U.S. Attorney General Herbert Brownell, uh, hard-charging Manhattan District Attorney, Governor, uh, and two-time presidential candidate Tom Dewey. Uh, and uh, it was really terrific to see that the Nelson Rockefeller Award was given to my good friend Alan Jacoby, who just happens to be the chief sponsor of this show because he is the owner of My Patriot Cigars. Congratulations, Alan. I also, unfortunately, had to miss the uh, Italian-American Civil Rights League Christmas party. Feel badly about that. Uh, if you're concerned, folks, that when they took down the statue at City Hall of Thomas Jefferson, that it's only a matter of time before New York City decides to take down the statue of Christopher Columbus, well, you can join us at the Italian-American Civil Rights League by going to IACRL.org uh, because we intend to stand up for our proud heritage. We intend to stand up for our history. We intend to stand up for our traditions. This is a nonprofit organization there's nobody here is, is compensated. Everybody involved is a volunteer. Every penny goes into programs uh, and even potential legal action if the city of New York or other jurisdictions seek to take down statues of great Italian-American heroes. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether hell is going to freeze over because I actually saw a video in which Chris Cuomo said, that he is actually considering voting for Donald Trump. Could this possibly be true? Is Chris Cuomo seeing the light? What we do see in the country is uh, Trump derangement syndrome, uh, which is really run amok. Uh, the number of people who uh, claim that Donald Trump would be a dictator uh, and that he is uh, going to uh, impose an authoritarian brand of government and he's going to punish his political enemies. Well, wait a minute. Who is it who is trying to jail the leading political opponent in the next election and his associates? Why, well, that would be Joe Biden. 
who is it whose uh, party and administration use the intelligence agencies to lean on social media platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook uh, and uh, Instagram uh, and TikTok and others to suppress uh, messaging uh, and uh, posts with which they disagree? Why, that was uh, Joe Biden. Uh, who is it that is responsible for over uh, 5 million illegal searches of Section 702 databases for U.S. citizens uh, and improperly surveilled over 278,000 Americans without warrants? Why, that was the Biden administration. Uh, who is it who is uh, seeking to lock up without due process those involved in peaceful protest uh, on January 6th. Uh, that was, uh, of course, Joe Biden's administration. Uh, who is it who claims that classifying parents who go to school board meetings because they're concerned with the curriculum being taught their children as domestic terrorists, or for that matter, those who support the right to life? You see, this is what they call uh, Alinskyism. That's where you uh, accuse your political opponents of doing that, which is exactly what you are doing. Uh, if you're just tuning in, folks, this is the Roger Stone Show here on 77 WABC. And if you can't listen to us in the New York area, the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area at 770 on the AM dial, we are streaming worldwide, 73 countries, by going to wabcradio.com. Following uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, argument, an excellent piece by Joe Concha, who is now a columnist for The Messenger uh, and also uh, a regular contributor on Fox, uh, who says uh, the following. Uh, Donald Trump has been called every name of hyperbole in the handbook. Authoritarian, dictator, extremist, racist, xenophobe, Hitler-like, Stalin-like, the second coming of Mao, orange Jesus, Putin's puppet, a destroyer of democracy, and more. Of course, none of this is new, as he points out. This has began from the moment he came down that golden escalator. But this, uh, this unintentional comedy rose to new heights this past week after The Atlantic dedicated its entire January-February edition to explain how and why Trump will destroy democracy if he wins a second term. This piece actually had 24 writers with 24 perspectives, all on the false-based narrative that it's Donald Trump who poses a grave and extreme consequence to the nation, were he to win in 2024. Included in the warnings was how journalism will struggle under Trump, who ironically, as Concha points out, was the most press acceptable president in modern history during his last term. Trump had 35 solo press conferences during his final year in office. How many has Joe Biden had in the last year? Why, that would be three, yes, three. Hard to believe. 
Not to be outdone, of course, the New York Times, which has not endorsed a Republican presidential candidate since 1956, went into an absolute panic on Monday in a long, extensive piece warning Trump using the Justice Department to investigate his political opponents. If this sounds strangely familiar, Contra writes, perhaps that's because that's exactly what's happening now. With Donald Trump facing 91 felony counts and four different state and federal trials uh, set to begin before Election Day in 2024. See, while they may not be able to lock Trump up in a jail cell ultimately, although make no mistake about it, they would like to do so, they can essentially lock him into the courtroom. So in uh, February, March, or March, April, and May, key times in the presidential selection process Donald Trump won't be able to campaign in the swing states or the early states because in a criminal proceeding, he is required to attend the daily trial. Trump has really, I think, uh, set these people off largely because despite the barrage of crap that has been thrown at him, uh, counterintuitive as it may be, all of these indictments have simply served to make him stronger. We have a great show for you today. Coming up shortly, uh, Bridget Gabriel uh, with Act for America, who, who has herself escaped Islamic terrorism, is going to talk about the threat of Islamic terrorism to the United States. Javier Mengeris, the publisher of The Floridian, without question the single most influential uh, Florida news outlet, is going to talk to us about Trump versus DeSantis, and he's kind of straight down the middle. We're going to look forward to his uh, 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 analysis of that situation. Uh, and then perhaps the most controversial guest we have ever had, investigative journalist Laura Loomer, joins us uh, to focus on the question of whether Donald Trump can receive a fair trial in New York City. She has done extraordinarily investi uh, extraordinary investigative work uh, on the judge uh, in both of the New York cases, uh, and we look forward to that interview. You definitely want to hang on for that. You know, these are difficult days, but when we have days like this, I'm reminded uh, of the words of Theodore Roosevelt. He said, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, but who, at the best, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls 
who know neither victory nor defeat. Coming up later on the show, we're going to talk about a number of things, including who Donald Trump should pick for his vice president. I'll give you my thoughts on that uh, before the show is over. Talk a little bit about the reinstatement of Alex Jones to X, uh, known as Twitter, and the extraordinary two-hour interview with Tucker Carlson. And it's a good time to announce that Tucker Carlson will join us right here on the Roger Stone Show next Sunday. You're not going to want to miss this. So buckle your seatbelts. This is the Roger Stone Show, and we'll be right back with Bridget Gabriel, uh, the head and founder of Act for America, who has personally survived Islamic terrorism and has grave words of warning for this country. We'll be right back. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC, the crown jewel of AM radio. Now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC radio app so you don't miss any of the amazing talk or entertainment programming here at 77 WABC. I'm thrilled today to have the opportunity to interview Bridget Gabriel. She is the founder and chairman of Act for America, but perhaps more importantly, Bridget Gabriel is a leading commentator on politics, culture, and national security. As a legal immigrant to America, born in Lebanon, she personally survived the war in the Middle East, actually living in an 8 by 10 underground bomb shelter from age 10 till age 17. Bridget Gabriel has uh, addressed and briefed the uh, United Nations, the Australian Prime Minister, members of the British Parliament, specifically the House of Commons, members of the U.S. Congress, the Pentagon, the Joint Forces Staff College, the U.S. Special Operations Command, and the U.S. Asymmetric Assem- <laughs> Warfare Group, the FBI, and many, many others. Uh, Bridget Gabriel is also the New York Times bestselling author of three books, the latest being Rise, The Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. But the book I am most impressed with is her first book, Because They Hate, A Survivor of Islamic Terror Warns the United States. Bridget Gabriel, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Roger. I am delighted to be with you again. Uh, I think it's very important for people to know your personal story because your your expertise uh, and your passion uh, about uh, what America and the world currently faced are based on your personal experience. So tell us, who is Bridget Gabriel? Where did you come from and what have you experienced? 
Wow. Thank you, Roger, for the introduction and the setup. Um, it is important because a lot of people who watch me on television or hear me talk about national security, they always wonder, where does this passion come from? And they do not know my background. You see, you read my first book, uh, Because They Hate. My passion comes from my own experience, born and growing up in Lebanon. Uh, what most people don't realize is that Lebanon used to be the only majority Christian country in the Middle East. Uh, most people, when they think of Lebanon today, they think, you know, terrorist Hezbollah controls the, the country. But the country that I was born into used to be majority Christians. We were open-minded. We were very fair. We were tolerant. We were multicultural. Uh, we prided ourselves on our multiculturalism. We had open borders. We welcomed everyone who wanted to come to our nation uh, and study and work because we had built the best economy in the Middle East. Uh, Arabs used to send their children to study in Lebanon because we had built the best universities uh, in the Middle East. They graduated and worked in our economy because we had developed the best economy in the Middle East, even though we did not have any oil. Beirut became Paris of the Middle East, the banking capital of the Middle East. That's the country in which I was born into. Unfortunately, all that began to change when we imported people, when we allowed people to come into our country that did not share our values. Uh, and what I mean by that is we opened our, our arms to accepting waves of Palestinian refugees who were expelled out of Jordan when King Hussein bulldozed 30,000 of them because they tried to overthrow him uh, out of power when he accepted them into his country. They came to Lebanon, and they put their heads together with the Muslims in Lebanon, and that's what really tipped the scale. We always had our problems with the Islamists in Lebanon, but we always had it maintained um, as long as the Christians were the majority. Once the Palestinians came in, they put their heads together with the Muslims in Lebanon and declared war on the Christians, and um, that's when my life turned upside down. Um, my 9-11 happened to me in 1975 when radical Islamic Palestinians were trying to take over our town, trying to create a base from which to shell Israel and launch attacks against Israel because I lived in South Lebanon on the border with Israel. And that's when they launched uh, bombs at the army base above my home trying to take it over. They missed the army base and 14 shells exploded in my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded, and uh, changed my life. Um, I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months being treated for my injuries. And I remember being in the hospital, going from one surgery to another, and I would ask my father, why did they do this to us? And my father would tell me, because they consider us infidels and they want to kill us. So I learned since I was a 10-year-old little girl that I am wanted dead simply because I was born into the Christian faith and lived in a Christian town. Um, and I ended up leaving the hospital and coming back home, but my home was no longer the home I left. I ended up living in a bomb shelter underground in an 8 by 10 room 
without electricity, without water, and very little food. And that's where I lived for the next seven years of my life, uh, from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth. Uh, you write uh, in your book, Because They Hate, a survivor of Islamic terror warns America, uh, as an Arab Christian and a victim of radical Islam during the Lebanese Civil War, I refuse to stand by and let the same thing happen to my adopted country, the United States. Even after 9-11, there were those who say that we must engage our terrorist enemies, that we must address their grievances. Their grievance is our freedom of religion. Their grievance is our democratic process. Islamic religious authorities and terrorist leaders repeatedly state that they will destroy the United States and Western civilization. Unless we take them at their word and defend ourselves, they will succeed. I really think you sum it up right there. What I don't understand, and I'd like to hear your views on, is what part of this does the Biden administration not understand? You cannot negotiate with people who don't want peace. You can't negotiate with people who have no interest in coexistence. You cannot negotiate with people who are only interested in land or territory. Uh, the Islamic terrorists, particularly Hamas, Hezbollah, and others, have been very blunt about the fact that they seek nothing than the utter destruction of both Israel and the United States. So my question to you, Bridget, is are the folks in the Biden administration naive or are they, is it willful? Do they understand what the agenda here is for our enemies? They are naive in part. They are ignorant in part. They are willfully ignoring the facts because it benefits them. Uh, and this started with the Obama-Biden administration. I want to take it back to the Obama-Biden, when Obama was president and Biden was his vice president. As soon as Obama came to power, and we knew exactly what our enemy wants. Look, Roger, you and I have been dealing with politics, and you're way longer than me. But well, at least with me, with radical Islamic terrorism is something that I have dealt with, you know, for the last 30, 40 years. And I remember when I was in Israel reporting on world events, reporting on the news, and talking about all the attacks against Western interests. And you read that in my book, Because They Hate, where I list time and time again where our enemies have attacked the interests of the United States, where we turned a blind eye and pretended if we bury our heads in the sand, they will forget about us. We have never faced an enemy who tells us exactly what they want to do to us, how much they hate us, uh, uh, what their pl long-term plan is. I mean, Al-Qaeda attacked the Kubar Towers in 2005. Uh, I mean, in 1995. Uh, uh, they attacked the USS Cole. They attacked the World Trade Center at the first time in 1993, and then they came back and re-attacked the World Trade Center the second time in 2001, this time bringing it down. And they told us exactly in their plan what they want to do to the United States. We ignored it, and we did not believe that our enemy is capable of doing that. When Obama came to power, 
at that time, in 2007, our government uh, had a launched the Holy Land Foundation trial in Dallas, Texas, where our government, it was the largest terrorism trial ever in the history of the United States, where our government handed down 108 guilty verdicts to Muslim American and Muslim American organizations who were raising money in the United States and sending it overseas to fund terrorism. Uh, the Palestinian uh, suicide bombers, etc., and terrorist organizations in the Middle East. As soon as Obama came to power, Eric Holder uh, stopped all delivering the indictments. Uh, one of the indictees were CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. And Eric Holder, Obama's uh, attorney general, put the kibosh in handing out the indictments. And instead, we see that ISNA, the Islamic Society of uh, America, they became advisors to President Obama about foreign policy. CARE, the Council on American Islamic Islamic relations had over 300 visits to the White House under Obama and Biden, even though they were unindicted co-conspirators in the largest terrorism financing trial in America's history. And by the way, CARE used to be the Islamic Association for Palestine, which basically is Hamas in the United States. They changed the name. They had a meeting in Philadelphia where the FBI recorded the meetings, and they figured out that we need to come up with a name that Americans cannot suspect or link to a terrorist organization like Hamas. So we need to come up with a name, and that's how they came up with the Council on American-Islamic Relations. So right now, not only CARE worked with the Obama-Biden administration, now they are working with the Biden presidency and the Biden White House, even though they are Hamas in the United States. So our government, because of their own private interests and their uh, uh, willful blindness to the facts, the facts do not change, Roger. The facts are the facts. It's how people react to the facts. Because they do not want to accept the facts, they ignore them, and they pretend that's not true, and reality is going to come back and bite us in the tush unless we wake up in the right time to save ourselves. Uh, we seem to have learned nothing. Uh, first, the Biden administration unfreezes $6 billion in assets that flows to Iran based on some vague promise that the money will only be used for humanitarian purposes. Then we give $100 million for direct humanitarian aid for Hamas. We read today that Hamas doesn't use that for those purposes. And now the Biden administration, according to the Wall Street Journal, announces that we're going to unfreeze another $100 billion in assets for Iran. Uh, Iran uh, has nuclear capabilities. The Israelis took care of this once by bombing their reactor. There seems to be no will in this administration to either understand the existential threat that Iran poses not just to Israel, not just to the other countries in the region, but to the United States itself. Uh, again, I ask the question, is this stupidity or is it willful? 
at this point, they cannot hide behind stupidity uh, because the writing is on the wall. The facts are there. We know we cannot trust Iran. Look, when Israel bombed the Iraqi nuclear reactor at that time, it was the only time that the United States condemned uh, Israel at the United Nations. And so thank God they were able to, cond- to bomb that nuclear reactor. Can you imagine what type of war we would have had when we ran into the war with Saddam Hussein? So right now, Iran is developing nuclear power. We knew that starting in, in 2003 when Israel started traveling and meeting with the world leaders telling them that Iran is developing nuclear power. The world decided to ignore Israel. In 2014-15, when the, when the Obama-Biden flushed Israel uh, with cash with the Iran deal, remember when, when Obama gave them, you know, pallets of cash delivered to the airport in the dark of the night uh, on pallets? All that money went to fund their nuclear program as well as fund the armament and building up of Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in the Palestinian territories in Gaza in particular, the Houthis in Yemen. And so when, when President Trump came to power, he suffocated Iran. Iran was on life support. I mean, if he would have been in the White House right now, meaning President Trump, Iran would be on their knees right now. They would be over. But because Obama came to power, uh, Biden came to power and immediately unshackled Iran and started giving them cash again, look at the monster we are dealing with. And what people need to remember, America is the great Satan. Israel is merely the little Satan. We are the bullseye. Iran is, is, is creating a power shift in the world, partnering with Russia, with North Korea, uh, with China. They are trying to create a counterbalance to the United States, all these other countries that hate us. So right now we have the axis of evil, what I call them, the, the, the dictatorship, the bad actors of the world are trying to create a block of power to destabilize the world and serve their own interests. And that's what Iran is doing. And that's why we have to stop the White House. We have to stop our government from authorizing or sending, these, sending this money. Whatever we have to do, we have one year to do it until we are able to hopefully change leadership in the White House. And that's exactly why I encourage people to go to our website, my website, actforamerica.org. Actforamerica.org. Make sure you sign up to receive our action alerts because we notify you about bills coming down in Congress. And we are working on many to immediately stop the Biden administration from continuing to funnel money to Iran. The elected officials in the White House need to hear from you. We want to be able to reach you when we need you to bombard the, the, the administration and stop them from sending that money. Go to actforamerica.org. Dot org right now, sign up to get our action alerts and take action on the many Act Now campaigns we have about this issue. Uh, folks, uh, if you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC. Uh, and we're talking to Bridget Gabriel, uh, a leading commentator on politics and particularly national security, uh, an expert on the threat posed uh, to the United States by Islamic terrorism. Uh, and radicalism. Uh, and uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to meet Bridget and her husband uh, at Mar-a-Lago uh, several weeks ago. And I can tell you, she is as lovely and as beautiful as she is brilliant and 
courageous. Uh, we are really honored Thank to you. have you with us today. Uh, you anticipated my next question, which was uh, about Act for America. Uh, I'm beginning to see uh, the impact of what's happening in the Middle East on domestic American politics. Uh, you may not be surprised, you probably aren't, but I am surprised uh, at the extraordinary level of anti-Semitism uh, and the extraordinary level of pro-Palestinian, pro-Iranian, pro-Hamas sentiment on the American campuses. It appears to me that our current college education system has been a greedy breeding ground for disinformation uh, and uh, let's just say it for for anti-Semitic hate. Uh, and uh, last week, when a group of Muslims uh, organizations came forward and said that they would suspend their support of Joe Biden, which seems to have a disproportionate amount of influence among younger and college age voters. Uh, I saw on Twitter, now known as X, that people saying, oh, this is a front organization. This was orchestrated by Roger Stone. I know nothing about it other than what I've read. But I see Joe Biden and the Democrats putting restraints on Israel, limiting Israel's ability to defend themselves, telling them what weapons they can use, telling them what targets they can choose, telling them what tactics they can utilize uh, as a sop uh, for these younger voters who seem to be surprisingly, overwhelmingly Palestinian based on a series of falsehoods. Your view? Uh, yes, they are. Look, I call our universities occupied territories. Um, and you know from reading my book, Because They Hate, uh, I have a whole chapter about how we are losing our college campuses. And my book came out in 2006, and you would think it was written yesterday. And I talk about how the Palestinians and the Arabs and the money flowing from the Middle East have been able to influence our universities using the Title VI program. The Title VI program, for those who are not familiar with it, is a, a program that was instituted by our government so our students, those who wish to get involved in the CIA or in diplomacy or work for the State Department, that program was instituted at our college campuses to teach our students about foreign policy and different cultures and different governments for those who want to get into the diplomatic field to empower them so they can be an asset to our country. What happened with the oil-rich Middle East, especially with the oil in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East being flushed with oil, they started funneling millions of dollars into our universities using the Title VI program, setting up Middle East study department and social study department and political departments, appointing professors who are funded by these institutions, who are anti-Israel, anti-America, to teach our students that Israel is evil, America is bad, and that Islamic world is the underdog. And as a result of this level of education, when you look today at our universities, all these students who have been graduating out of our universities for the last 20 years 
are today, then use writers, then use shapers, then use anchors, the foreign policy makers. Uh, I mean, look at Obama with his apologetic towards touring uh, uh, the Middle East when he came to power. And so, and this was, I'm talking about students graduating back in the early 2000s. These students today are in their 40s and 50s. So for the last 20 years, today we have a totally brainwashed uh, a new generation, and the universities are flushed with even more money. In my book, Because They Hate, I discuss the millions of dollars uh, uh, donated to Georgetown, to Harvard, to Penn State, to Duke University, Columbia University, uh, etc., all these universities. So today, you are watching... Palestinian students who have been imported into our country, and by the way, a lot of these students that you see marching on the streets are here on student visas. The other problem that we have is there is no cap on our universities as to how many students they can accept. They can take 5,000 students from the Middle East who are funded through private Muslim foundations who are coming to study at Harvard and Columbia and Georgetown, and the universities are taking them. So when you're seeing all these students demonstrating at the universities, they are not even American students. They are here on student visas who are studying at our universities, and they are brainwashing uh, uh, the kids, uh, you know, the American students at the university, and they come here, and they immediately get involved in the Muslim Student Association, which has uh, chapters on all our college campuses, and we are seeing the results today of years and years of indoctrination. And by the way, the, the strategy worked so well on college campuses, on college campuses that they started doing it uh, to sixth graders from sixth to twelfth grade today. In all of the high schools, they are completely brainwashed about America and Israel, and it's a major problem. Uh, there's no question. It also seems to me that they're very aggressively want to indoctrinate children all the way down to the elementary school level. Yep. Ex excellent address I heard this weekend by uh, Pete Hegseth from uh, Fox uh, addressing this very question. Tell us about your new book, Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. Well, I wrote Rise uh, in defense of Judeo-Christian values and freedom because our values are under attack. Our freedoms are under attack. And by the way, this is not a religious book at all. It's about politics. It's about our current policy. It's about how in our country people are afraid to say Merry Christmas. You go to the store to, buy, to do shopping for Christmas. People can't even tell you Merry Christmas. The reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted to inform people that the foundation of Western civilization is Judeo-Christian values. Uh, uh, this is where in our culture, you know, we, we talk about treating each other with respect. We tell our little kids, oh, Johnny, treat others the way you want to be treated. People don't realize that the, 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 even the most pr basic principles, come let's reason together, let's debate ideas and agree to disagree. All this comes from a biblical Judeo-Christian foundation. And we are losing that in our culture today. One, because we are importing people who don't share our values. Right here in America, all of a sudden, everybody gets offended. Everybody wears their sensitivity sleeves on their arms. The littlest thing offends them. Nobody can talk about anything. Nobody wants to debate ideas. 
what made us great as a nation is our ability to agree to disagree and debate ideas. So that's what I talk about in the book. I talk about how the Internet has become the new theater of war. I talk about the leftist Islamist coalition how together they are working to destroy our country. I talk about, uh, I have a chapter titled Education or Indoctrination, where I go in detail about what's happening in our education system, from elementary school all the way up to graduate school. But what makes my book unique is at the end of every chapter, I have a section titled Rise Up and Act, where I give people three things they can do under 10 minutes that will make a difference for the country, and they can do it while sitting in their pajamas being keyboard activists. And that's how we can take back our country. So I hope people will read it because, you know, Roger, I'm all about action. That's why I created my organization, Act for America. I did not name the organization Think About America or Hope for America or Pray for America, but Act for America, because we can think and hope and pray, but without action, nothing happens. And what we are doing with Act for America is mobilizing people across the nation. We have activists on the ground in 98% of U.S. counties and territories. There are 3,143 counties in the United States. We have activists on the ground in 3,075 counties, and we hope that by the end, through 2024, before the election, we will have activists on the ground in every single county in the United States. That's how we're going to take our country back without action and mobilization. Education by itself is not sufficient. Education must be coupled with action. So people can listen to the radio, people can watch TV, people can read articles. That's all entertainment. People can go to conferences. That's entertainment. Action is when you impact policy, you impact policy on the ground as well as the halls in Congress. And that's how Act for America, my organization, has been able to pass 210 bills on the federal level and the state level to protect the country. So my book, Rise, is an extension in detail on how everybody can become mobilized and organized. And I send people to actforamerica.org to become engage, take action on our action alert. We monitor bills coming down for a vote on the state level and the federal level. And we send an email out to our members saying, this bill, number, whatever it is, H4775, about whatever, parental rights and education, no matter what the issue is, you need to call your elected official. We need, you need to send them an email. We already have emails prepared for them, uh, social media posts prepared for them. Uh, uh, we give them their phone numbers, even a script where they can read the script off the computer as they call their elected officials. We make it so simple that anybody, even who's got two jobs, can take action, and it takes less than a minute to take action on their iPhone or their computers. All right. Unfortunately, we have to end it there. Let me thank Bridget Gabriel of Act for America. Follow her on X. She has a very, very lively, uh, formerly Twitter, now X feed. Bridget Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger thank Stone Show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me with you. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world. 
and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC the crown jewel of AM radio. You know, I have been studying the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan on March 30th, 1981. I found a number of interesting things. I addressed this earlier in my book, uh, The Bush Crime Family. But since that time, a great deal more research has come my way. Did you know that the official report into the investigation of the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan has never been released? Uh, did you know that Mark, uh, that uh, John Hinckley Jr., who was convicted of attempting to assassinate President Reagan, was always in front of Reagan and shooting from a crouching position, uh, and that all eight bullets discharged by Hinckley have been accounted for, and that none of them hit Ronald Reagan, or that Ronald Reagan was hit from both above and behind. Uh, In fact, at the exact same time that Reagan is hit, which you can see by the expression on his face, well, that is the episecond in which his press secretary, James Brady, was hit in the head by a bullet. No gunman can get off two bullets at the exact same time. Uh, the Secret Service argued about whether it should take uh, the injured Reagan to George Washington University Hospital or to Bethesda Medical Center, where the autopsy of John F. Kennedy uh, was conducted. And strangely enough, Reagan arrived at George Washington University Hospital 15 minutes after his press secretary, James Brady. But when he got there, three X-rays could locate no bullet within Reagan. There was a small slit as an entry point. What they ultimately did find is uh, called a flechette. It's a small flat disc about the size of a dime, which is fired from a weapon, uh, a flechette, that was uh, exposed in the church hearings before the U.S. Senate looking into the CIA uh, abuses. Judy Woodruff, who was a reporter for NBC at that time, actually reports on air seeing a second man, uh, allegedly a second gunman, on a balcony above the entrance of the Hilton Hotel. Uh, When you look at the released photographs uh, of Reagan that day, you cannot see them. But when you go to the broader original photographs, this man can be very clearly seen. Is my supposition that that is the second shooter. Anyway, this is the subject of my next book. I'm hard at work at it. And well, on this subject, we will keep you posted. Joining us now uh, is uh, Javier Mangeris, who is the publisher of The Floridian. The Floridian is 
without any question, I think the single most influential Florida political news outlet. He has an active uh, uh, feed on X, formerly known as Twitter. He also has a great website. Uh, and let me say at the outset that uh, Javier, Javier Majerus is a down-the-center reporter. In other words, he is neither for President Trump nor for uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. He calls them as he sees them. Uh, it is my great pleasure to uh, to welcome Javier to the Roger Stone Show. Roger, thanks for having me on. Uh, delighted to have you because uh, you're a man who has great depth in covering both Florida and uh, uh, national politics. Uh, you're very familiar with both contenders. Uh, you pointed out to me that you had what I guess I would call a historic one-on-one -on -one interview with uh, businessman Donald Trump uh, when he came to Florida to speak to the Palm Beach County Tea Party organization, what, what, what year was that? Was it like 2011, 2012? I believe, I, be, I believe that was 2011. It was uh, an event that you put together, I believe, uh, in Boca Raton. Alan West was also a guest. It was an amazing event. Uh, did, you, yeah, well, uh, did, did you know then and there that he was likely to run for president? Well, I know it was teased. I know it was talked about at the time that he may run for president. And uh, he didn't run for president, uh, but eventually he did in 2015 decided to run. But at the time, no, I just I just thought he may have and he would he would he would be a big, uh, strong contender if he did. But he didn't announce for several years after that. Yeah, I think he always thought that he had uh, a seller's remorse. He ultimately endorsed Mitt Romney. Uh, in 2012, he deeply regretted that. As he said to me, Romney has no instinct for the jugular. The guy goes around apologizing. Trump would say, never apologize. Never apologize for anything. Double down. It's really kind of his philosophy. Uh, he really did think uh, long and hard about running in 2012. And then on New Year's Day, 2013, uh, I called him at Mar-a-Lago, as is my custom, to wish him a happy new year. And he said, you know, I should have run. I could have beaten Obama. And I said, well, I think so too. And he said, well, I'm not going to make this mistake again. Uh, I, I'm running next time. And I said, well, uh, you know, I've heard this before. He said, no, I want you to know I have already uh, applied to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to trademark the campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. So I actually knew from that moment that he was going to run. And I always thought that he had the size. I don't mean the physical size, but the stature, uh, the independence, the stamina, the toughness to be not just a great presidential candidate, but to be a truly great president. Uh, Javier, you will remember that immediately after the 2022 elections, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis was actually leading Donald Trump in the polls in the home state that they both share, Florida, uh, was also leading in, in some national polls. Uh, he was definitely dubbed by Fox News as the future, as uh, the New York Post, owned by the same entities as Fox News, said on their cover. Uh, yet today, uh, he is mired in single digits nationally. Uh, he is struggling 
uh, in single digits in the all-important Iowa caucuses, where it's entirely possible, despite an extraordinary financial and physical effort on his part, an effort in which I would argue he has ignored Florida, uh, he may not even come in second. He could conceivably come in third. What what went wrong here? Well, I think, you know, look, a lot of variables. I think the biggest variable is that, you know, he decided to run against a former sitting U.S. president. When was the last time that happened? You know, and considering that President Trump has, has a huge following uh, of supporters, diehard supporters, uh, as, uh, as they like to call the MAGA community, uh, they're unwavering and they stick by their guy and they're loyal. And, and, and again, it, considering what happened in 2022, many people believe that that election was rigged. Uh, there's a lot of things that point to the fact that it could have been rigged or, or was rigged. There's a lot of uh, questions that still are left unanswered because of the, as a result of the election. So there's a lot of people that are very upset and they believe that Donald Trump was would have this election stolen. And that's the biggest obstacle that Governor DeSantis has had to face is that base support and the fact that, look, uh, President Trump said he betrayed him. And a lot of people believe he does because a lot of people believe that this was Donald Trump's uh, rebound, re- uh, comeback and that he was going to win because he was wronged in 2022. And DeSantis uh, we all know this, and the sense I think has has already admitted that he would not be where he is now if not for the endorsement of Donald Trump. Now, I, as governor in the primary in 2018, because I was I lived it, I I covered the race, and Pres- and Governor DeSantis was at the time candidate DeSantis. He was losing by big number against uh, Adam Putnam, who was the agriculture secretary, or agriculture commissioner at the time, and that endorsement saved the day for him. He was able to beat Putnam and, and eventually the general scale, barely make it by uh, Andrew Gillum, the Democrat, to win the, nom- to win the actual governor convention. So he owes a lot to, dis- to governor, I mean, President Trump. A lot of people believe that you know, that's a betrayal on his part by running against the president or the former president. That's the biggest yeah. obstacle. Yeah. Ironically, although in the past, uh, Governor DeSantis has acknowledged that Trump's endorsement propelled his candidacy forward to victory, more recently he said on CNN that he would have won in 2018 without Trump. Uh, Javier, you covered you covered the race. Is there any way you uh, you could agree with that? I strongly disagree with that because at weeks before the primary election, uh, I had elected officials, U.S. senators, U.S. congressmen, calling me and asking me what was going on with this elect this uh, uh, campaign that it was run terribly. Uh, I won't use the choice words on air that they were telling me to describe the campaign. And, and I knew that DeSantis was, was uh, seeking the endorsement. Uh, and when he did, it was a complete turnaround. It was a complete turnaround. And DeSantis surged. And he, he, he got the base support of the, of the party. I mean, I, and I've, de- I've dealt with, I've spoken to people that supported Putnam that were within his in the circle. And they agree that after the Trump endorsement, uh, the Santa's surge, and it was, they were pretty much uh, knocked out because of the endorsement. Uh, Governor DeSantis has a very tough decision to make uh, on Tuesday uh, because that is, that is the deadline, I believe, uh, by which he must uh, either leave his name on the Florida primary ballot or take it off. Now, the Florida primary is not until March, 
but he has already filed to appear. And, of course, the Iowa caucuses uh, are not until January 15th, which I think will be either the death knell for his candidacy uh, or will, if he wins, which I think is highly unlikely based on the data, uh, uh, propel his candidacy forward. But he runs a substantial risk uh, of getting beat by 40 points in his home state in March, perhaps in a race in which he's already withdrawn. That would be humiliating. What do you think he should do? First of all, uh, more importantly, Tuesday is my birthday. Secondly, yeah. Uh, uh, the uh, I don't think he drops. Uh, at first, I thought maybe he would drop out, considering how the polls are are rolling out. But I think that he has to. He can't quit now. He can't say he's not going to run in the Florida primary or pull out of it because that's pretty much saying he's conceding the entire election. And why even run in Iowa? I think he'll stay in it. I think that uh, he will. I think he'll gain some traction a little bit. I think Haley's his biggest obstacle uh, in the primary. And um, I think that after Iowa, if he loses by more than 15 to 20 points, going into a week later in New Hampshire, uh, if he loses by the same amount, I think he drops out then because he's put all his eggs in one basket, that being the Iowa caucuses. And uh, I I just don't see how he, he would have to drop out then and then lose in Florida. His name will be on the ballot in Florida. And that'll sting him because people will point to the fact that, hey, regardless if you dropped out or not, you lost Florida by a massive number of, of votes or percentage points. I think it hurts him down the road. The only saving grace I think he has is after he drops out or if he drops out uh, by losing these caucuses in primaries is the fact that he has a supermajority in Florida and he will do everything in his, in his power to implement another, uh, continue his uh, agenda that he's been pushing the past couple of years. It's been popular with Floridians, uh, both independent and Republicans. Uh, he'll have to, to uh, finish hard or strong the, fact the last two years of his election, of his, of his second term, and then going into 2026, decide on what he's going to do if he's going to run in 2028, which I'll tell you, there'll be a lot stronger candidates running against him uh, in 2028, and he'll ha- it'll be a tougher slog for him, and he will not have the bully pulpit to raise the money he did this time around for the, for his presidential cycle. Well, and that also presumes in 2028 that there is a, an opening. I mean, I, I know right. you are a close friend uh, and some would say a confidant of uh, our great Senator Marco Rubio, who I have really come to respect and like over time. I was not really, I was, I was against him when he ran against Charlie Crist. I had some problems with him later, uh, but I really have uh, changed my view quite a bit on him. Uh, he's not exactly my cup of tea, but I think he's a good man. Uh, there, is there any indication that he's not going to run again? Do we know that? Well, no. I, listen, I He was on my flight a couple uh, weeks ago, several weeks ago, and I brought it up. He just looked at me with a big smile and, and laughed and kind of used a couple of choice words. Like he, he wasn't thinking about running right now, but he I have spoken to him in the past, and he says the only – uh, race he would run in or see who to run for would be the presidency. Now, that doesn't tell me that he's definitely running in 2028, but I think him, uh, Senator Cruz, and other uh, elected officials in D.C. are keeping their powder dry to see what happens with President Trump in this election cycle. I think that considering that he has been arguably the loyalist uh, U.S. senator to President Trump during the Trump years, 
uh, speaks volumes. He helped write uh, President Trump's Western Hemisphere policy and helped him with other uh, initiatives, uh, including uh, something he worked with uh, with, uh, Ivanka Trump. So he's very loyal, and Trump knows that. And so, hypothetically, if Trump were to win the 2024 uh, presidential presidential election, President uh, Donald Trump, I'm sorry, uh, Senator Rubio will be elected official. He's still there. He'll be there for another four years. He could uh, continue where he left off with Trump and become even have his loyalty even stronger than than it was before. And if look, and when President Trump is, is going out of office, what if Senator Rubio turns to him and says, "Listen, I'm thinking about running." You know, whether he endorsed him or not, he would be in a strong position to, at the very least, garner the support of President Trump in the sense that he won't endorse against him. President Rubio is in a good position there if all the cards fall into place. Uh, Folks who don't live in Florida may not realize that Governor Ron DeSantis is term limited. That means that he's now been elected to two terms. Uh, that seat becomes up for election again in 2026, but he cannot run again. Uh, even if he were nursing ambitions to run for the U.S. Senate, let's say, in 2028, when the seat of Senator Marco Rubio is up for election, uh, he needs some fulcrum with which to raise money. People give money to Donald Trump because they love him, because they support him. People give money to Ron DeSantis because they have to. Uh, the size of his average contribution is extraordinarily high. That's because the great bulk of his campaign money has come from special interests uh, who are mindful of the fact that as governor, uh, he can punish them or he can help them. Uh, but I would argue that once he leaves the governor's race, he does not have the kind of dedicated fundraising base that, say, uh, a Donald Trump has. And therefore, I have said on this show and elsewhere uh, that I think uh, Casey DeSantis, uh, the the first lady of Florida, will run for governor uh, at the end of Ron DeSantis's second term. George Wallace was the governor of Alabama. He had national aspirations. Alabama had a two-year term at limitation. His wife, Lurleen Wallace, ran for governor, essentially on the popularity of her husband. Uh, she was elected. She was actually considered uh, a very effective uh, reform-oriented governor, surprisingly. So uh, how do you see uh, that folding out? Uh, uh, Roger, I couldn't agree more with you on that because, uh, you know, you're right. Governor Sanders has turned it out. He won't have the bully public to raise the money to run for president again. Uh, Casey DeSantis is, I know very well, nice woman, great mother, um, is right on all the issues because considering she's helping the governor himself, with all these issues, and he's that have been very effective in Florida and popular. So if she ran, I think she would be hands down the favorite. And if she won, uh, she would be continuing the 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 DeSantis' third term. And Governor DeSantis will be in the background, I'm sure, living in the mansion again. He's not going to have to move out. And it'll very powerful couple, and it'll and that would help him in 2028 be able to raise money with the uh, with the donor class for the lobbyists in Tallahassee because you're right once he's out he does not have the bully pulpit he can't raise money he won't be able to raise the kind of money he did this time around and one thing he has to contend with and if he runs for president in 2028 is that whether it's Rubio or Chris or uh, Senator Cruz that run in that primary in Iowa 
he is not going to garner the evangelical support that he has garnered this time around. It'll be split because Ted Cruz won it in 2016, and these guys are devout Christians. They can recite the, the, the Bible. They can recite Scripture. It'll be very tough for him. But I agree with you. Uh, Casey DeSantis would be a very strong contender, and I wouldn't put it past it if they, uh, uh, if they put her up to run in a few years. Yeah, a great piece in the National Pulse recently, uh, the University of Florida, after receiving increased state funding, just happened to release a poll testing Casey DeSantis against a Republican primary field for governor in 2026. Uh, there it is. That is not to say that that particular field would not be uncrowded. You have a state agriculture uh, 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 secretary, uh, Wilton Simpson, uh, who seems inclined to run. You have, of course, Congressman Matt Gates, who seems inclined perhaps to run. You have Congressman Byron Donalds, a great admirer of his, uh, is a potential candidate. Uh, the businessman, entrepreneur, farmer, Alfie Oaks, uh, is, I, I know, uh, considering a candidacy. So uh, I, it wouldn't be wide open. Uh, it would be wide open, uh, in my view. Uh, there's no doubting that Casey DeSantis would be a, uh, would be a, a formidable candidate. But I would argue, uh, and you, you live here as I do. By the way, we're talking to Javier Mangeris, who is the publisher of The Floridian. Tell folks uh, where they can go online to see your great work. They, they can go to floridianpress.com. That's floridianpress.com. Uh, they can follow us on X at uh, floridianpress.com. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think, I think you're, uh, you're right about the field. Um, it'll be a, a strong field. A big, a, why should I would say no less than six or seven people. It'll dwindle. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, Casey DeSantis is such a strong name, very likable. Uh, I, so I, I would tell you this, is I think she gives a better speech than Ron DeSantis. <laughs> I, I've seen her at many events, and I've seen her on TV, and she's very persuasive. Uh, she delivers a good message, uh, whether it's scripted or not. I think she, she has a better delivery than Ron DeSantis and likability than Ron. No offense to Ron, but I just it, it is what it is. So um, that, that would be something to factor in uh, if this comes about. Uh, I have some theory, though, that the governor's absenteeism when it comes to Florida right now it comes with a political cost. Uh, insurance rates particularly are, have skyrocketed. A number of home uh, and other insurers are leaving the Florida market. Insurance premiums are up by 40 uh, percent. If your home is destroyed uh, in the hurricane, let's say, uh, and you don't want to accept the pennies on the dollar that your home insurance company is offering you, uh, you have no ability to sue them because of a law signed into place by right. Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, utility rates uh, are off the charts. The governor took $9.5 million uh, from Florida Power and Light and its subsidiaries and campaign contributions to his various endeavors and the people here got a uh, a 22 to 25 percent increase in your electricity bills which in a state with this many uh, older citizens on fixed income uh, that that's really devastating uh, it, you know it's nice to say that the governor signed an executive order which prohibits them from pushing the race and gender nonsense uh, on 
uh, elementary school children. But I can tell you firsthand, it is not being enforced. Uh, they are pushing uh, a a, a, a uh, such a curriculum right here in Broward County today. So uh, the governor talks a good game. I haven't seen any recent polling on his uh, job performance uh, 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 numbers, uh, but my guess is that he is doing some permanent damage uh, to his reputation and his political standing in the state. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, he, like I said, he put all his eggs in one basket to run for president. Everything, his whole political agenda, the past two uh, legislative sessions, has been all about him. Uh, he has the right to do that. He's he's got a bully pulpit. He is the governor of the of the state of Florida. Uh, but again, at what cost? Because if he doesn't win, then a lot of those none of those measures that he has backed and issues that he has pushed are are going to fall back. And you're, you're, you're already starting to see flat that he's been receiving, especially as you mentioned on the insurance front. Uh, they've had special sessions. Uh, nothing has come of it. Like you, see, you mentioned, that law that goes in place that you can't sue uh, insurance companies. Uh, that's a problem. And, and not so much Republicans, independents. Everyone is complaining about it. Everyone from across the political sca- uh, landscape, from Republicans to Democrats, they're complaining about this, all, all homeowners. And so that's a big issue that has not been addressed. It's been it's been brought up, and hence the, the special election they had last year. But nothing, I'm sorry, special session they had to address it, but it hasn't been addressed. It's a problem. As far as uh, the schools, I agree. I live in Broward County as well, and I've written extensively on how the Broward County uh, school district is continuing to push uh, wokeness, if you would. If you look at several stories that we've written point to the actual website where they're promoting Malcolm Malcolm X as a great guy, that police uh, are the bad guys, and promoting wokeness, and it's right on the website still to this day. <laughs> so a lot of those issues, and, and j- just the other day in, in Lee County, uh, there was a teacher promoting wokeness, BLM, uh, transgender, in with a poster in her actual classroom. You know, what happened there? So there's a lot of school districts and teachers that are defying the governor, and that could be perceived as weakness on his part. Um, but, you know, because he's been in uh, campaigning, he hasn't been uh, really on top of that, as it, it, the perception is. And so, like before, when anything happened, when he wasn't campaigning, he would, something happen, would happen like this at the state level, within hours, he would be addressing it now. It's falling by the wayside because, you know, it's, hey, you can say that he's been campaigning, he's been preoccupied. Yeah, it is, uh, uh, it is uh, extraordinarily interesting. We're going to see. I, I think you're right. He can't really take his name off the ballot on Tuesday for the Florida primary because it would be read as an admission in Iowa that he is conceding. And frankly, expectations are everything. He went out yesterday, read this in the New York Post, uh, absolutely predicting that he will win the Iowa caucuses. Let's be very clear what that means. Win is defined as coming in first ahead of Donald Trump. Winning is not being in a distant second, but beating Nikki Haley. That is not a victory. All right, I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to thank uh, Javier Mangeris uh, from the Floridian for joining us here on the Roger Stone Show. Uh, and, uh, well, buckle your seatbelts. Laura Loomer, the most banned woman in America, is up next on the Roger Stone Show. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell 
but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. Special thanks to Javier Mangeris of the Floridian Press for that last segment. Joining me now uh, is a woman who is a true force of nature, uh, one of the most persistent, resilient, hardest working, highly intelligent investigative journalists in America today. Uh, she has been banned. She has been vilified. She has been smeared. But there's never any instance in which she cannot both defend herself and everything she reports. Laura Loomer joins us now on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you for having me, Roger. Great. I'm delighted we were able to hook up. Uh, yeah. Look, at, look. Uh, there's full disclosure here. You and I are very good friends uh, when I was going through two years of unmitigated hell, uh, being smeared as a Russian asset, uh, you were one of a handful of people who uh, stuck with me. And for that, uh, my wife, Needy, and I will always be grateful. Uh, and uh, you ran two valiant campaigns for Congress, the first one in which you received a higher percentage of the vote in an overwhelmingly Democratic district, district that Donald Trump happens to live in, uh, than anyone in history. And then a second race for Congress in which, I don't say this lightly, I'm absolutely persuaded by looking at the actual vote records uh, out of Lake County, I believe you were cheated out of a congressional seat. Uh, and I say that for the record. No, it's not just an excuse. Uh, I think it, it is a truth. But today I have to question whether or not, even though you didn't get elected to Congress, you may be having a greater impact on what's happening in this country than you would even have had as a member of Congress. Because your, your journalism has taken off uh, in a way that is really extraordinary. You have almost, last time I looked, three quarters of a million followers on X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, your rumble show, Loomer Unleashed, which runs twice a week, uh, has viewership uh, off the charts. And it's because you bring the receipts. There's nothing you, re nothing you report that you can't back up. So, uh, first of all, my congratulations and, of course, the great affection uh, of both my wife and I. Thank you. Well, obviously, I love you and your wife very much. Uh, you're both uh, dear friends, and not many people can say. I think I'm the only person, aside from your wife, who can say that they were at your house the day that you got raided by the FBI and at your house the day that President Trump called you to, c to commute your sentence. Uh, absolutely true. So uh, what I really want to focus on today uh, is uh, the ongoing New York trials against uh, President Donald Trump. Yeah. The, the current trial before uh, Judge Angoran seems to be one of the greatest travesties I've ever seen. First of all, he's being charged. Uh, Trump has been charged under a law under which no other person has ever been charged in the history of the state. Uh, and it is a quote-unquote crime 
uh, or an offense in which there is no victim. In other words, Trump is accused of overvaluing assets in order to buy money, uh, borrow money in loans, uh, which were fully paid back with handsome interest. Uh, and the banks in question, they don't take the borrower's word for it. They use their own appraisers. They use their own lawyers. Uh, and they made a lot of money. This whole case reeks uh, of a political hit job. Absolutely. And not only that, too, but there's, you know, numerous inconsistencies and ethical dilemmas that have arisen in this case due to the fact that Angoron himself uh, has, as I've exposed through my investigative journalism that you highlighted, has had inappropriate ex parte communications with Michael Cohen, who is the star witness, of course, uh, brought forth by Letitia James. Uh, there's uh, video evidence of Arthur Angoron's son attending anti-Trump rallies with Letitia James. Uh, you have the Twitter post that I've uncovered from the wife of Judge Angoron, Don Marie Angoron, who was making anti-Trump comments and talking about how the judge was going to rule on this matter while the trial was taking place, including the day that Trump himself testified in front of the court. And on top of that, too, you have Letitia James, who is guilty of which she uh, that of which she is accusing Trump of being guilty of. Uh, this is a woman who failed to uh, disclose a dark money loan from anti-Trump operatives uh, that I uncovered and reported on. And uh, as I'm going to be releasing in the next uh, few days as well, she has some issues of her own when it comes to, um, you know, uh, I guess, like disproportionately valuing her assets as a way to uh, avoid taxes. And so it's interesting, right, Roger, because you saw this when you were targeted by the deep state. And now we're seeing this in the case of Donald Trump as well. Everything that these people accuse, whether it's you um, Donald Trump, General Flynn, whoever their 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 next target is, they themselves are guilty of the offense that they attack right wingers for. I mean, it, it's it's like clockwork. It could be tomorrow, it could be next year, it could be two years from now. But there's always a story that ends up coming out that shows that, uh, in fact, the people doing the accusing are, are guilty. We saw this with RussiaGate, where one of the main investigators in the RussiaGate uh, scandal was uh, arrested for having inappropriate and treasonous um, uh, business dealings. Do you remember the story, Roger? Yes, uh, with Charlie McGonigal. Yep. With Russian oligarchs. And so it's, it's just really unbelievable. I've never seen so much emotional gaslighting in my life. And that's exactly what it is. It's not just an abuse of power. It's not just treason. It's not just weaponized government. It really is emotional abuse. The American people are, are victims of emotional gaslighting. Yeah, it's interesting that in the new charges against Hunter Biden, which I spoke about earlier in the show, because I reported every dime of income, uh, I owe the IRS taxes, 75% of the $2 million I owe is interest and penalties, which they refuse to negotiate down, as they would with any other taxpayer in a settlement. But Hunter Biden is not charged with violating the, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. It is absolutely clear from the laptop contents that were published by MarcoPoloUSA.org. By the way, folks, if you want to get uh, see graphically, directly, all of Hunter Biden's laptop material and how damning it is, go to MarcoPoloUSA.org. You can either download it from their site. Uh, the, the pornographic images have been blurred, so it's safe to have around the house if you have children. 
but it is also carefully annotated, but it is completely faithful to the original. Uh, and uh, anybody who's seen that can see it's quite obvious that Hunter Biden worked uh, as an agent for uh, Ukrainian interests, Chinese interests, Romanian interests, and Russian interests, yet he never filed a Foreign Agents Registration Act uh, filing. And the problem with that is Paul Manafort was charged and given solitary confinement for that crime. Uh, it, is a, it is a true uh, two-tiered system uh, and a double standard. If it weren't for double standards, the Democrats would have no standards at all. Absolutely. Uh, Laura, I, I know that uh, that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is one of your favorite topics. Uh, <laughs> you you, you yeah, and I—he's my, my best friend. I know that. I know that you're his best friend uh, too. We're going to have to see who takes the title for for the bestest of best friends, Roger. When well, it comes to Ron DeSantis, <laughs> uh, look, I think you. I think you and I, not to blow our own horns, but I think we were among the first people in the state to see uh, that after his 2020 re-election, even before it, there were strong indications that he was going to challenge the man who made him, the man who lifted him out of political obscurity, catapulted him to the Republican gubernatorial nomination, and then dragged uh, his butt over the finish line because he was not a very good general election candidate uh, in the 2018 election. And we both took a huge amount of abuse of people saying, why are you dividing the movement? He's not running. He would never do that. Uh, these are unfair attacks on him. He has no intention of running. Uh, and we both, we turned out to be right about that. Ron DeSantis wanted to run for president in the worst possible way. And I would submit to you, that's exactly what he has done. Yeah, look, uh, he's run one of the worst campaigns ever in United States history. And so, look, the other day, we're, we're quickly approaching the Iowa caucus. And, of course, Ron DeSantis is going to learn the hard way yet again that he could spend hundreds of millions of dollars like he has, and he's not going to win. He's not going to win Iowa. And so just this last week, his wife, just a day ago, was literally calling on people all across the country to flock and descend upon Iowa ahead of the caucus to commit voter fraud. And so you see that every single thing that they do, whether it's being disloyal to President Trump, calling for calling for um, for election fraud, uh, you know, trying to take credit for President Trump's accomplishments and pretend like, you know, you were elected as governor without the help of President Trump, as he's uh, frequently done uh, on the campaign trail thus far. Ron DeSantis just cannot stop taking L's, right? And if you don't know what an L is, if you're listening to this radio show, it's it's a loss, right? He, he just cannot stop losing. And everybody's able to see this except for him. He seems to be the only person that is incapable of reading the room. It's the first time in seven years in our country where the right and the left have actually been able to come together. I mean, you have the most right-wing factions of this country, Roger, coming together with the most left-wing factions of this country to agree on one thing. And that one thing is that we all hate Ron DeSantis. That one thing is that Ron DeSantis is the most sanctimonious politician to ever run for president in the history of this country. And yet he cannot take a hint. Yeah, his debate performances uh, just confound me. He, he reminds me of the 1960 circuit, uh, Richard Nixon, before uh, Roger Ailes, later founder of Fox News, uh, came and kind of reinvented Nixon, trained him on how to look and act on television, 
great book on this called The Selling of the President, 1968. Uh, I saw Roger Ailes' uh, widow, Beth Ailes, recently, and we spent a few minutes talking about what a genius Roger Ailes was uh, and how he transformed uh, and breathed life back into the political career of Richard Nixon. Uh, but DeSantis reminds me of the pre-1960 Nixon. Too hot, too nervous, too jumpy, uh, a completely inauthentic smile. The guy should not even try to smile. He doesn't have a natural smile. He doesn't good look, look good when he's trying to smile. <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, that debate with, with uh, uh, Gavin Newsom, because I, I'm a junkie, so of course I watched it, uh, but Newsom, I think, easily won on style. You could argue that Ron won on substance because his case was so much easier. Florida versus California. California is a basket case. Taxes, crime, you name it. Uh, it's a dumpster fire. Yet, uh, at most, uh, based on everything I saw, the governor of Florida got nothing whatsoever out of that debate. What is your what's your impression, Laura, of the governor's debate style? Well, I was at the debate uh, not to watch the debate because I had no interest in the debate. I was there uh, as an exclusive Rumble uh, creator during my live stream. And then, of course, I ended up watching the debate. And, uh, you know, during the commercial break, I actually filmed a video because I wanted to document Ron DeSantis's very uh, strange mannerisms, because everybody has realized, as you said, he has terrible uh, debate skills. President Trump um, mentioned this last night when speaking at the New York Young Republican Gala, and you know he called him out for his high heels and his bobblehead BS. And you can see that clip. Uh, President Trump gave a really great speech last night in New York. And the reality is, is that uh, he just doesn't have the stage presence. And you, Roger, you're a seasoned political operative and strategist, and you know as much as I know, debates are popularity contests. This is why President Trump did so well in 2015 and 2016, because he was able to bypass the scripted media lines, bypass the um, the mainstream media and uh, really just like the controlled talking points and flow of your typical GOP presidential debate. And he was able to speak directly to the American people. He has charisma. Ron DeSantis does not have charisma. And in the video that I actually filmed from my seat at the debate, it went viral because all it was was Ron DeSantis acting weird on the debate stage during a commercial. And it was such a funny clip that even The Daily Show, this is what I'm talking about with the right and the left, the farthest, most progressive left-wing factions of our country coming together over the fact that Ron DeSantis is very politically awkward. And the, the, they narrated the clip, Roger. I'm sure you've seen this video. It's gone viral now. It has over 5 million views on Twitter. Um, and, and everybody's laughing about it because you can't actually look at Ron DeSantis and say he's likable. Even Megyn Kelly, as, as disingenuous as that woman is, right, pretending that Ron DeSantis won the debate. She was caught on a hot mic at the News Nation debate that she moderated the other night, Roger. I don't know if you saw this. And she, she was making fun of Ron DeSantis's inability to connect and his failure at retail politics. So even the debate moderators that are probably paid off to, you know, say that he won the debate when he didn't win the debate, the clear winner was Vivek Ramaswamy. They don't even believe the bull crap that they're trying to force feed the American people. Roger? Yeah, it's interesting. The, 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 the DeSantis campaign made so much of the fact that he's visited 99 counties, keep calling it the full Grassley 
after Senator Chuck Grassley, a great man whose tradition it is to visit every county in the year in which he's up for re-election. Uh, but they lose sight of that, that Vivek Ramaswamy has visited all 99 counties, except for within a couple of days, he will have done so twice, visited all of them two times. Uh, and uh, the extent to which the Florida, pardon me, the Iowa caucuses, even though they have a different structure that day, has become more like a primary in the sense that the voter participation will be much larger than it has been historically. So I think you had about 125,000 voters came out for the 2016 caucuses. Uh, we didn't have contested contests there in 2020. I think you could have 185,000 uh, Republicans come out on a cold night for the Iowa caucuses. Uh, and this is not why you don't just walk in and vote and leave in a machine or by paper. That's a primary. Uh, this is where you have to go to a meeting and you have to sit through a meeting uh, and you have to stay a while uh, and you have to cast your vote during the meeting. That's why they call them caucuses. Uh, and uh, this idea that the support of Kim Reynolds, another backstabber, uh, who begged Donald Trump for an endorsement when she was in a competitive race, but now has fully endorsed Ron DeSantis, uh, or the endorsement of uh, Reverend Bob Vanderputz, uh, who's a big evangelical. Turns out that he may have gotten at least $50,000. I read elsewhere it was $500,000. Laura, maybe you can clarify that, but clearly sold his endorsement. Endorsements are not transferable. No one says, oh, I was going to vote for Trump, but now I'm going to vote for uh, Ron DeSantis uh, because, uh, you know, because uh, Bob Vanderputz is for him. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Never has. The one exception to that, in all the years I've been in American politics, 45 years, the only endorsement that actually packs a punch at the polls, ironically, is the endorsement of Donald Trump. The endorsement of Donald Trump in a congressional or U.S. Senate primary can absolutely, literally make or break a candidate. I, I say this not only through observation, but by studying reams and reams and reams of polling. Uh, but the idea that Reynolds uh, and, uh, and Vander Putz are, are going to put DeSantis uh, over the top, is uh, that's an absurdity. Yeah, look... <laughs> Vander Plaats ran for governor of Iowa three times. If his endorsement is so significant and so influential, why is he a three-time losing gubernatorial candidate for Iowa, right? I mean, look, if the guy seems to think that he's uh, worth more than he really is. And uh, let's not forget, too, that Kim Reynolds was uh, kissing President Trump's ass, begging for his endorsement when she ran for governor as well, only to turn around and stab him in the back. And so uh, there was recent polling, Roger, I'm sure you saw this as well, that came out and shows that uh, Kim Reynolds and Ron DeSantis are currently listed as the two most unpopular governors in the entire country. I mean, that says a lot. That says a lot when you're dealing with people like Gavin Newsom, okay, and, and, and Kathy Hochul. So when you are more unpopular than people like Kathy Hochul and Governor uh, Governor Newsom, 
that says a lot. The Trump factor is a major factor here when it comes to favorability for governors because loyalty matters. And the only people who really haven't gotten the memo about how important loyalty is to the American people are these 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 can, candidates themselves. I mean, even Gavin Newsom was smart enough to pick up on this when he debated Ron DeSantis at Sean Hannity's uh, little you know, debate that he had last week. And he said, in a couple weeks, you're going to be groveling, coming back, endorsing Donald Trump. Right. And, and, and he called him out for being disloyal to President Trump. Loyalty matters. If you're not going to be loyal to the people who brought you to the dance, how can you be expected to be loyal to your country and the American people? And that is something that I hope people study for generations to come in this country if we continue to even have a country. <laughs> that time will tell if we do, right? It's going to be largely dependent on whether President Trump is elected in 2024 or else this country is over. The average empire only lasts about 250 years, and we're currently at 247 years. And I think we're going to have an early death if uh, Donald Trump doesn't get reelected, Roger. Uh, but uh, if we are able to get Donald Trump back into the White House, Trust me when I say history books and, and political science books are going to be written, and you can comment on whether you agree on this or not, about the impact of loyalty when it comes to presidential politics and presidential elections in our country. Uh, I agree with your analysis. Look, I, I know the history. Uh, I remember when Trump endorsed DeSantis, lifting him out of obscurity. Uh, I did not think early on that anyone other than politicians would care about that. The fact that Ron DeSantis uh, engaged in a treacherous act of backstabbing and ingratitude, I really did not think it would register with the voters, but in fact, it has done so. Laura, tell people where they can go to see your great work. Well, thank you, Roger. And uh, people can go to my website, loomerd.com. I also have a show on Rumble twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. So rumble.com slash Laura Loomer. It's called Loomer Unleashed. And I'm also on Locals. So uh, people can uh, go to my local channel as well. And uh, that's where people can sign up to uh, view all of my uh, my information and uh, get all of my exclusive investigative reports. I'm on X and Truth Social at Laura Loomer as well. All right, folks. So please uh, go to those sites and also financially support the investigative journalism uh, of the great Laura Loomer. I'm afraid we're out of time here. Laura Loomer, thank you for joining us on the Roger Stone Show. And folks, you want to stay tuned because Joe Piscoho is next with Sundays with Sinatra. This has been the Roger Stone Show. God bless you and Godspeed.